Hi and welcome to this latest episode from News from the Front. In this episode, we're doing a bit of a dive into the subject of alcohol in the Great War, looking at how it was used, abused and generally contributed to morale across the belligerents. This has been a long one to write, so I'm going to split it into two parts for the, uh, for the podcast. If you want to read the whole transcript, it's available on the Substack. Just go over there and subscribe and you'll be able to see uh, all of it straight away rather than having to wait for the next episode to drop. These articles take a long time to write, so if you feel minded to support via the Substack, please do. Let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for a file is at stake. In this article, I'm going to take a look at a subject I've only heard passing reference to. So I thought it was time for a deep dive. I'm partial to a beer or two, and it occurred to me that I'd only ever seen snippets of information about how alcohol was used, abused and controlled during the Great War. So I've spent a bunch of time churning through the books to present a history of booze in the First World War. In the course of my research, I've looked at the experience across the belligerent powers and focused in more detail on the British experience. We begin by looking at the British home front, Concerns about the effect of alcohol on the home front, and particularly on war production, led to significant changes in the way in which the people of Britain were able to buy and consume drink. As Lloyd George, the fiery liberal politician during his period as Minister for Munitions, said, We are fighting Germany, Austria and drink. And as far as I can see, the deadliest of these three foes is drink. Another time, he maintained that drink was doing more damage in the war than all the German submarines put together. How true his and others' fears were is difficult to say, but the measures the government took show the seriousness with which they took them. Of course, most things are more complicated than they look, and it was not just fear for war production that drove people to insist that alcohol would result in the collapse of civilization as we know it. For example, Lloyd George came from the radical non-conformist tradition and had strong views on the demon drink before the war, so was naturally disposed to see alcohol consumption as a problem, whether there was a war on or not. Lloyd George was instrumental in convincing the king to give up alcohol for the duration of the war. I'm taking this as a sign that the king, in common with many others, was expecting a short war. The possibility of extending prohibition to the whole of the country was discussed in the cabinet, but wisely rejected. Instead, the duties on spirits, strong beers and sparkling wines were increased as the government leaned on indirect taxation instead of income tax to shore up its finances. Regardless of the reasons, there were genuine fears about the impact of drink on war production. Towards the end of 1914, Beer consumption dropped as prices rose due to duty increases, but spirits became more popular as incomes had also grown. The fears about alcohol affecting war production were particularly acute in relation to the all-important construction of naval ships. In April 1915, 
33 men from Special Branch were sent to the dockyards around the UK to see what impact alcohol abuse was having on production. The reports were variable, with riveters being the trade worst affected by their tendency uh, to problems caused by overconsumption, and this particularly affected production on Mondays. Some things just don't change. The results of the special branch investigation were, however, variable, with Clydebank suffering more than Plymouth. Having decided that excise duties were to be used instead of prohibition, and having ruined the King's dinner parties for the next four years, the government also brought in other restrictions during the course of the war. Pub licensing laws were changed to reduce opening hours to lunchtime and evenings only, beer was brewed with just a quarter of its previous strength, and the buying of rounds of drinks was prohibited by the no-treating order that specified that all drinks had to be paid for by the drinker themselves, effectively preventing drinking on credit. In one part of the country uh, that was considered particularly sensitive, Gretna, where a huge ammunition factory employed 15,000 workers, the government's central control board took control of five local breweries and 363 licensed premises, covering an area of 300 square miles. In this area, restrictions on advertising, even on displaying bottles in the windows, price controls and specific orders controlling particularly troublesome pubs were implemented. It seems that the government's control measures had some effect both locally and nationally. Over the course of the war, beer production fell from 37 million barrels in 1914 to 21 million in 1918. Convictions for drunkenness fell year on year from 184,000 in 1914 to near 29,000 in 1918. Across Europe, the experience varied. In line with Britain's experience, the main concern expressed on the various home fronts was the effect on the war effort, and of wasting valuable foodstuffs on something as non-essential as drink. This tended some nations towards temperance measures. In Russia, the government erred towards prohibition. All state liquor shops were shut down in the run-up to the war as a mobilisation measure. No one wanted drunkenness to cause problems with the mobilisation when such strict schedules were in place. However, this measure was extended for the duration of the war on the 3rd of September 1914. The maximum strength of spirits was also reduced from 40% to 37%, and the sale of alcohol in places of entertainment was prohibited. These measures had the unforeseen effect of removing an important Russian government uh, revenue stream while pushing money into the hands of criminals. It seems that if a Russian wants to drink, they'll find a way. In France, banning wine was considered a step too far, but the dangers of absinthe became a focus for the government. On the 16th of August 1914, the sale of absinthe was prohibited, with its production and distribution being banned the following February. Absinthe, it seems, was particularly targeted because of its popularity. Pre-war, some 36 million litres had been consumed and partly because of fears that it was linked to tuberculosis, insanity, epilepsy, and as a consequence, crime, all of which could damage the war effort. Other spirits were targeted to a lesser extent, with sales to women prohibited, 
and the maximum strength being reduced to 23% alcohol. When the Americans entered the war, they brought with them a strong tradition of temperance, which was to manifest after the war in the 1920 prohibition experiment. Whilst measures at home were limited, there were prohibitions already in place to protect the armed forces, with the 1901 Canteen Act banning the sale of or dealing in beer, wine or any intoxicating liquors by any person in any post, exchange or canteen or army transport or upon any premises used for military purposes by the United States. On the Entente side, the Italian experience differed to that of Britain, France and the United States. Italy had a strong temperance movement before the war, but this was essentially neutralised with the outbreak of uh, hostilities and the recognition that the troops deserved the spiritual fuel that alcohol provided. The Central Powers were not bothered by issues of temperance. The German and Austro-Hungarian alcohol industries were left alone, except for a general decline in production caused by scarcity of the raw materials needed to produce the drink. Of course, the Ottoman Empire didn't even have to think about the issue, as its mainly Muslim subjects wouldn't touch alcohol as a matter of Quranic obedience. Temperance wasn't just a matter for the home front, though. The British Army had a strong tradition of abstinence, promoted by the Army Temperance Society, and was often strongest amongst NCOs. Concerned individuals tried to provide alternatives to the ubiquitous regimental wet canteen, which was a place of cheap weak beer, uh, substitutes such as the Garrison Institute Coffee Shop, or Sandy's Soldier's Home, which provided tea and coffee as substitutes for beer alongside such home comforts as comfy chairs and cheap sandwiches. Thus, those who abstained from drinking were often nicknamed tea busters or bun wallers. Prior to the war, experiments in the British Army had shown that rifle accuracy deteriorated when soldiers had drunk even a small amount of rum, and there are other examples of military inefficiency caused by alcohol. Gordon Lennox of the Guards recalled marching from port to their first camp in France in 1914. It was the hottest march I have ever done, and hope ever shall. With the sun on our backs and no air, everyone felt the heat very much, and the men started falling out, a few at first and then more. The inhabitants, in their kindness, were responsible for a good deal of this, as they persisted in giving the men drinks, among which was a very acrid form of cider, which had dire results. I have never seen march discipline so lax before and hope I never shall again. Despite the best efforts to steer men away from the drink, the majority still partook, some to excess. In the year 1912-1913, 9,230 soldiers were tried for drunkenness, and we have to assume that this is the tip of an iceberg, as there were lesser punishments available that wouldn't have affected the statistics. There's no getting away from the fact that consuming alcohol could result in behaviour that could lead to punishment. Fights between units would break out in pubs once beer had been flowing, often started by inter-unit banter that caused first offence and then fists to fly. Away from the front lines, or when on leave, opportunities to drink might be seized upon, with little thought for the consequences. Take, for example, the case of two soldiers in the 4th Hussars, who discovered that they were being billeted in the British Expeditionary Force's own warehouse 
alongside the army's rumstocks and help themselves. Men of the other ranks of the British army, that is those who are not officers, were prohibited from drinking spirits with the exception of the limited amount of official prescribed rum that was available. An officially sanctioned tot of rum, one sixteenth of a pint, was available for the men when divisional commanders, on the advice of the medical officer, deemed that conditions were suitably arduous. It seems that the definition of arduous was generally pretty loose, with most officers seeing the rum ration as a useful way of maintaining morale, a suitable reward for the men. The rum provided to British troops was a thick, syrupy spirit that was brewed and distilled to an incredibly strong 80%. The British and Commonwealth forces were unique amongst the belligerents in uh, providing rum, a tradition going back to the availability of cheap, plentiful rum as a consequence of the British capture of Jamaica way back in the 17th century. The allowance was 2.5 ounces, or 70 millilitres, and was generally provided daily for the men whilst they were in the trenches, less frequently for those behind the lines. The spirit was provided in solid earthenware jars marked SRD, an acronym that stood for Supply Reserve Depot, but the men came up with various other speculative definitions, ranging from the plausible Special Red Demerara to the bitter Seldom Reaches Destination, Service Rum Diluted, Soon Runs Dry, Sergeants Rarely Deliver, and the rather lovely Soldier's Real Delight. One other reason for drinking alcohol in the trenches was the difficulty of getting other drinks. Water was generally heavily chlorinated to purify it, so tasted bad. Tea was welcome, but lighting a fire to boil water often attracted shellfire, so it wasn't worth the risk. The other problem with water and tea was that, with no infrastructure to get water to the front, it had to be carried forward in old petrol containers, and these often hadn't been burnt out properly to remove the taste of the fuel. A tot of rum in a cup of tea that tasted bad could make it more palatable. The rum ration was issued by officers who supervised doling it out, observed the men drinking it to prevent hoarding, and checked that each man who wanted it got just the one tot each. The rum ration would be mixed in with tea to make a warming drink or issued in less complicated ways. Corporal Charles Quinnell of the Royal Fusiliers recalled how the platoon sergeant would come along the trench of a night time with a big tablespoon and this mess tin of full of rum. The cry was, open up, and you'd open your mouth and he'd pour this tablespoon of rum down your throat. The men generally appreciated the rum ration and many testimonies exist to, about the comfort it gave. John Reith said, it was a very real boon, even to a habitual charwaller like myself. It warmed us up, eased tension and even helped soothe the inevitable toothache and abscess troubles. The tot of rum wasn't mandatory, but the majority of men were happy to partake, seeing it as a highlight of their day. Robert Graves recorded, Our men looked forward to their tot of rum at dawn stand to as the brightest moment of their 24 hours. When this was denied to them, their resistance weakened. And Graves was certain that the sick list grew, as a direct consequence of withholding the rum ration. The temperance movement seemed to worry about the troops drinking more than, in the view of the soldiers, was really necessary. Those trying to interfere with the rum allocation were, in the words of Edward Underhill, 
Fools, for it's the best thing out here. On a cold morning after a cold night, a tot of rum is very good. Gerald Burgoyne said, A drop of rum in our tea works wonders. Sir Victor Horsley and all the drink cranks can say what they like about the issue of rum to the troops and drink generally. But if instead of writing from the comforts of a nice cosy room, they'd put a few days in the trenches, I'm sure they'd change their minds. We don't want rum in the cold, or for the cold, but we want it as a pick-me-up when we are done to the wide. When the rum ration was stopped, for whatever reasons, it caused real resentment, as Lieutenant Morris Asprey of the East Kent Regiment said in a letter home on the 26th of April 1915. They have stopped the men's rum ration, because a blithering lot of fools made complaints about the amount of rum being sent out to English troops. I don't believe half the men could have existed without it all through the winter, and even now it's awfully cold standing too at daybreak. The rum ration was not really enough to get drunk on, but sometimes opportunities arose, and these, it seems, were seldom passed over. A common pattern seems to have been that the ration for a platoon would go missing, or perhaps more was issued to the ration party than was perhaps needed. Gerald Burgoyne recounted how the ration for his platoon, intended as a St Patrick's Day celebration, was instantly drunk by the NCOs alone, resulting in them getting beastly drunk instead of giving each man in the platoon a shot. Perhaps there was truth in the popular song, The Old Barbed Wire, which included the verse, If you want to find the Sergeant Major, I know where he is, I know where he is. If you want to find the Sergeant Major, I know where he is. He's boozing up the private's rum, I've seen him, I've seen him. Boozing up the private's rum, I've seen him. Boozing up the private's rum. In another account, Private Ernest Parker recounts how he was sent to get the rum for his section and returned with a half-full Dixie. Imagine a drum-shaped bucket with a lid that carried about three gallons of liquid. The men of his section were delighted and loud in their praises, but soon became incoherent, retiring heavily into the shelter to fall fast asleep. Later, when their captain made his rounds, he found a sentry asleep, and the NCO was severely reprimanded. But when we came out of the line, no one was placed under arrest, and we realised that our dear old bombing officer had not reported us. It seems that often such incidents might be glossed over. Bernard Livermore recounts how he received his rum ration in the morning, then was given extra, as there had been casualties, and the surplus rum was shared out amongst the remaining men. Bernard was already feeling pretty chipper, when a kindly officer then decided that he was looking a bit chilly and gave him a top from his whiskey flask. This was all good, in fact a happy, happy day, until he was sent with a message to the battalion HQ. I strode off briskly, but almost immediately my legs let me down and I crashed. Luckily for Bernard, his company sergeant major diagnosed the problem quickly. How much rum did you have? Quite a nice lot, major. Jolly good stuff, that rum. And I suppose you've eaten nothing since four o'clock last night? I know what's the matter with you. Bernard was sat down on the fire step and told, Don't you dare move until you've recovered. If any officer asks what you're doing, tell them CSM Dawes found you ill in the trench and ordered you to rest. Have you got that clearly? Bernard got it clearly, going on to describe Dawes as a great man, our CSM. 
Sometimes the propensity of soldiers to help themselves had tragic results. Corporal Ivor Watkins of the Welsh Regiment recollected how the rum was given to keep your tummy warm during the night. We never got drunk. But while we were in the Bethune sector in March, two chaps stole a jar of rum. They were dead by the following morning. They drank so much they regurgitated and killed themselves. Second Lieutenant Tom Adkins recalled how he was told to escort some prisoners back as a part of the Somme battle. I came to a little dugout and there was a body lying on the floor there. I said, why is that stiff down there? Why don't you get him out the way? He ain't a stiff, sir. He got at the rum jar. He's tight as an owl. He looked dead. Whilst most of these cases passed without serious consequences, alcohol was controlled tightly as drunk men in the front lines could be a danger to both themselves and those around them. Drunk men could fall asleep at sentry duty, already a capital offence on account of its serious nature, whereas men under the influence of alcohol could be careless or worse, reckless. A drunk soldier of the Royal Fusiliers, waiting for the command to attack in September 1917, shouted, Over the top! Over the top! We're coming for you! before a morning attack. Immediately, an officer commanded that the man be quietened down, and the noise stopped. Gerald Burgoyne, recalling the story, said, When I went along the next day, I found him very quiet. Someone had stuck a bayonet in him. Rum was often given as a stiffener before an attack. It wasn't enough to get the men drunk, but as Private Albert Day of the Gloucestershire Regiment said, I suppose that made it a little better? And Siegfried Sassoon recalled how The raiders had been given only a small quantity, but it was enough to hearten them as they splashed up the communication trench. Colonel Walter Nickerson said that rum saved thousands of lives. It is an urgent devil to the Highlander, a solace to the East Anglian countrymen before the fight. At that point, I'm going to split the article into two parts. So uh, if you listen out, the second half will be in the next podcast uh, episode. If you have enjoyed this, there are ways you can support the podcast. In the show notes, I've included a bibliography. And if you fancy buying any of the books, uh, there are affiliate links in there that result in a small kickback, which helped to pay for the uh, podcast hosting. Um, If you want the transcript, and if you'd like to see pictures related to the subject, uh, the full article is available on the Substack. Just search News from the Front over there. If you click subscribe, you'll get early access to the transcript for the next podcast episode and you'll be able to see the pictures that I've selected to illustrate the article there. As always, I hope you've enjoyed this and thank you very much for listening. Bye bye.